0: At the core, you know, we know how to solve climate change. We stop burning fossil fuels and use clean energy alternatives instead for the things we use fossil fuels for today. Um, That solves the problem. And so, you know, the faster we can move toward that uh, and not sort of get too caught up in the debate about what is the perfect solution that, you know, one group prefers or another group prefers, I think the faster we can solve the problem.
1: Welcome to Data Points, a podcast from Berkeley Earth that takes an impartial look at the people, places, and issues surrounding climate science. Berkeley Earth is an independent, non-governmental, non-profit organization supplying comprehensive global environmental data and analysis that is accessible, timely, and verified. To learn more about how you can support independent climate science, visit us at berkeleyearth.org and be sure to follow Data Points on iTunes and Spotify. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Data Points podcast. Next week, the UN COP26 climate change conference is set to kick off in Glasgow, Scotland. Amidst the backdrop of a year of extreme weather, delegates from countries around the world will convene to discuss the urgent climate policy and financing necessary to stay below the warming targets established by the Paris Agreement. Uh, In advance of this much-anticipated conference, we are again thrilled to welcome Berkeley Earth's lead scientist, Dr. Robert Rohde, and research scientist, Dr. Zeke Hausfather, who will be answering your questions about the climate science behind these warming targets and what a world below 1.5 degrees Celsius actually looks like. Uh, We received a number of outstanding and important questions in response to our request for submissions, and while we're very upset that we can't answer them all, we are very much appreciative of your insight and thoughtfulness uh, in submitting these questions. So um, thank you again. We can't wait to host another Q&A soon. Uh, until Hello, then, let's I'm get into Carrie this episode. I'm
2: social media manager for Berkeley Earth, an independent nonprofit organization focused on global temperature and air pollution data science. Joining me today to answer your questions about issues being discussed at the United Nations Conference on Climate, COP26, is Berkeley Earth Lead Scientist, Dr. Robert Rohde, and Berkeley Earth Climate Scientist, Dr. Zeke Hausfather, who will be attending COP26, along with policymakers from almost every country in the world. Thank you for joining me, Robert and Zeke.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks. Great to be here.
2: With COP26 being our overarching topic today, we'll start with an observation from Scott who says, all of the models the policymakers are relying on are only as good as their assumptions. Scott is concerned about setting policy based on modeling technology. Zeke and Robert, what are the ways that policymakers use climate models and how can we ensure that the underlying assumptions are sound?
0: So there's a phrase we like to throw around that uh, all models are wrong, but some models are useful um and the idea is you know we can never create a perfect model that gets everything right about our planet it's an incredibly complicated system but we can do a pretty good job in that direction um and to be honest it's one of the few options we have since we don't have a second earth that we can dial up and run experiments on um and so last year uh i worked on the study um that ended up being featured in the most recent ipcc report Uh, around evaluating the performance of all of our old climate models that have been published since the 1970s or so. Uh, And what we found is that those models, including the earliest ones published in the 70s, did a really good job of predicting the warming that would actually occur, or projecting as we say, uh, in the years after they were published. Um, So for example, um, Manabe's paper in 1970, uh, Suki Manabe, who just won the Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on on early climate modeling, uh, predicted that the world would warm by 0.6 C between 1970 and 2000. And that's pretty much exactly what ended up happening. So, you know, models aren't perfect, we have to be aware of their limitations. And that's particularly true when we start looking at variables outside of temperature, like average rainfall, for example, or we start looking at, you know, regional or local projections versus global projections, you know, models can be hit or miss for those sort of things. But for the basics, you know, the world is warming, we're causing it, and this is the range of warming we can expect in the future if we keep emitting greenhouse gases. The models generally get things pretty right.
3: Yeah, the, the only thing I would add to that is that a lot of the policy doesn't need to rely on the details of the models. It's sort of, we know what we're doing to change the atmosphere is creating harm and knowing exactly how much harm is less important to knowing, to then just knowing we should be working to reduce that. So we should be trying to cut emissions as as fast as is practical without causing additional harm to people infrastructure in the process. Uh, And whether we end up at such and such warming level or a little above that or a little below that isn't the key thing that people will need to be worrying about.
2: Great. Okay. next we have a question from Sam that also ties to accuracy. How can or should the scientific community Help non scientists to identify and confirm actual science versus speculative headline seeking global climate change content often seen in popular media?
0: So, that's a good question. You know, there is an unfortunate aspect of the media uh, that sort of if it bleeds, it leads, so to speak. Um, And so, certainly, topics that, you know, seem very flashy or, or might, you know, project imminent doom or something. Uh, get a lot more coverage than those that don't. Um, and the way that science works is, you know, there are always a few papers sort of out on the forefront of the science, you know, making claims that not everyone necessarily agrees with. Sometimes those papers will be right and sometimes they'll be wrong and, and further work will you know, suggest that they may not, might not be that accurate. And so there definitely is a challenge there around the way that new research is covered and, and a real risk of what uh, the journalist Andy Revkin calls sort of whiplash journalism where you see one study saying climate change will cause more hurricanes. And then a few months later, you see a bunch of other studies saying, oh, well, actually, no, it'll cause stronger hurricanes, but maybe fewer. Right. And so or similarly uh, debates around, say, the role of climate change in the cold snap and power outage in Texas, um, because there is a huge debate in the community around whether or not there's more mid-latitude variability associated with declining Arctic sea ice. And so those sort of things where there really is not a consensus in the community are tough to talk about and often you know, for variability or for tipping points in particular, the sort of public perception of them runs ahead of, of sort of our, our consensus scientific understanding. And so I think that's an area where the IPCC in particular and similar rep- assessment reports can play a really important role to sort of cut through all of the individual studies and headlines and sort of give a sense of, of what the community all agrees on um, and you know, where we disagree.
2: Great. Robert, anything to add to that? Yeah. I know you, you're interviewed all the time, so you probably have to deal with this uh, yeah.
3: quite often. Uh, yeah, I would add in terms of what the scientists can do to help, uh, I would add that there are efforts such as uh, climate feedback and other projects that aim to evaluate reporting in the media in terms of accuracy and encourage uh, you know, good, good reporting uh which will in general involve reporters talking to multiple experts you know that's generally a hallmark you like to see because if you're only getting one person's point of view even if they're a scientist sometimes they will be a bit outside the sort of average you know community relief uh so you know you look for science scientists will give feedback uh something to be helpful is to scientists. In their own words versus via social media and other projects, so you can connect directly, that's a little less flashy than what might be grabbing the headlines at the moment. And when there are controversies, the scientists will try to address that. Uh, you know, it's a little hard to drown out some of the headlines sometimes when it gets like a bit ahead, but we do make an effort to try and keep things on point.
2: Thank you. Okay. Um- This one we received a number of excellent questions regarding how to balance the priorities of developing countries in the context of emissions reduction. So we're going to try to consolidate all of everyone's great questions into a a couple key points. So we had um, Alina who referenced countries having various access to natural resources and Kahani. Who talked about India's relatively low per capita carbon emissions? How can we ensure effective implementation measures to curb climate change within reasonable and equitable expectations?
0: So, there certainly is a big challenge of balancing development and mitigation. Um, you know, it is the growth and prosperity in rich countries that has driven most of the historical global warming the world has experienced. And so there's a real worry among poorer countries like India that the rich world will sort of slam the door behind them and say effectively, he did so much damage to the planet uh, as part of our industrialization that you, know, you can't follow. Um, and this concern has always been the core challenge at the heart of climate diplomacy. Um, you know, there was this phrase in the 1992, I think, uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Uh, where they said countries have common but differentiated responsibilities to tackle climate change. Um, And a lot of the early efforts, like the Kyoto Protocol, put almost all of the onus on rich countries and had almost no requirements for mitigation for poor countries. You know, the challenge we're facing right now is that the designations between rich and poor are becoming a little bit more blurry, particularly with countries like China, um, you know, reaching per capita CO2 emission levels of the European Union, uh, and you know, becoming decidedly middle income and not low income. Um, and also just that there's a growing recognition that the entire world needs to get to net zero in order to stop the world from warming. And so that requires not just the rich countries, but every country, some point later this century, getting their emissions all the way down to zero. And so if you're in that world, then how do you balance those two priorities. Um, One option, and this is something that India and a number of other sort of developing countries have been pushing for, uh, is to really supercharge climate finance, uh, to give a lot more money to poor countries to help them transition away from fossil fuels more rapidly. this has been contentious. There's, there's supposedly a hundred billion dollars in pledges uh, that rich countries are going to make, but a lot of them, particularly the U.S., has been very slow in actually following through on that. Um, so there certainly is a challenge around there. You know, one thing I think that rich countries can do um, to, you know, both help poor countries transition and and also to show leadership is to you know accelerate their own phase out of fossil fuels. We're in sort of a weird world right now where you know some in the U.S. and Europe are trying to say ban finance for new gas plants in sub-Saharan Africa, while at the same time the U.S. is building a lot of new gas plants in the U.S. today. And so, you know, if we want to make requests for countries like India to stop building coal plants, then maybe countries like Germany should stop building coal plants first. Um, so we really need to walk the walk uh, if we want to have, you know, uh, a good chance of, of encouraging poorer countries to, to take steps, so, you know, we need to do them first. Um, but also, you know, we need to do a better job at making clean energy technology cheaper. And here there has been a lot of progress, you know, costs of solar have fallen by a factor of 10 in the last decade, the costs of battery have fallen by a factor of 10, the costs of wind have fallen by a factor of three, and renewable energy is the cheapest new form of electricity at the margin in many, many parts of the world. Um, but you know, there's challenges in scaling it up to a large part of the grid associated with intermittency. Um, and the more we can in the rich countries subsidize the development and deployment of these clean energy technologies, the sooner we can drive down the costs so that they're competitive with fossil fuels. Um, because if a developing country has the option to choose a clean energy alternative that's just as good as coal, oil, or gas, they'll do it if it's you know roughly the same price. Um, but getting it to be roughly the same price is the challenge.
2: Since data about emissions is so crucial, I'll share this question from Helen. She asked, How can you check whether individual countries are meeting their emission reduction targets?
3: Uh, so, there's a number of things that we look at, uh, or that scientists look at, not necessarily me personally. Uh, where we try and understand whether the emissions coming from countries. Uh, for a long time, one of the things that we've looked at is fossil fuel consumption. So, you look at how much fossil fuel is being produced, how much is leaving the country, how much is being burned, Uh, and that can give you a very good insight into uh, emissions, since most of the emissions are turned to fossil fuels. Uh, So for countries that are buying their fossil fuels on the international market, that's actually a very easy way to check what's going on. Uh, Countries that produce their own fossil fuels are a little bit harder, but we've, had, we've also had newer technologies coming online that allow you to monitor emissions, particularly the space based platforms that are just now getting started, uh, are likely to be quite uh, dramatic in terms of our ability to monitor uh, how, much fossil- how much carbon dioxide and methane uh, is coming from various locations. And I suspect in the future, maybe not quite at this moment, but in the near future. Uh, We'll have the technology to quite accurately estimate how much emissions are coming from different countries and different locations, and identify the sources of the big emissions. Uh, So that we'll be in a good position to know how much emissions actually are, uh, and then verify that with what is being reported internationally. And I suspect that those international reports, which are mandated by the Paris Agreement and their treaties, Will still be the go to but we'll have the validation behind it to know that these are actually reliable numbers.
0: yeah there there certainly has been some challenges in the past, uh, particularly with China around changing reporting standards over time and, and changing numbers and so. Having independent verification is good and as Robert mentioned remote sensing can go a long way there, particularly for methane where we're already starting to see some really neat uh, applications of of new methane satellites that have been launched in the last few years. CO2 is a a little harder, but there has been some important work done there. Um, There also is the ability to use remote sensing of other things like conventional air pollutants in order to infer what's going on with CO2. Um, You know, coal plants, for example, have a very unique signature of of sulfur dioxide emissions, Um, and so you can spot them from space pretty easily um, and when they're running. Uh, And so, you know, knowing where the coal plants are and when they're running, you can use that to sort of try to infer the CO2 being emitted from them. So there's other sort of ways to use other pollutants as a proxy, if you will, for uh, greenhouse gas emissions.
2: Okay, so tying right into this emissions discussion, Dominique asked, do we one day see a global emission cap system and a global climate dividend? So perhaps define what these are and how likely it would be that we would implement something like that.
0: So the idea behind cap and dividend is um, essentially you have a limited amount of emissions that are allowable. You have a trading system so people can trade emission permits uh, and the sale of any permits into the system, any revenue people or a direct payment, some sort of dividend. Um, There's also tax and dividend systems like Canada introduced uh, a couple of years back now. you know it's it's hard to have a global uniform anything um you know different countries have different priorities different preferences there's no you know way to force countries to adopt something like that um and previous attempts to have sort of binding global caps and emissions like under the Kyoto Protocol have, have failed um you know one of the big breakthroughs in international climate politics was the move away from uh binding targets and timetables in the Paris Agreement um, and just sort of have more of a bottom-up approach where countries can, you know, pledge to do what they can manage to do domestically rather than sign up to some cap with unknown future costs. Uh, So I'm skeptical we're going to go back to sort of the the top down international climate uh, treaty framework, I think, you know, Paris has shown that it is possible to get everyone on board with this more bottom up approach, we are starting to see country commitments you know, I think that's probably going to be the paradigm going forward for climate diplomacy. Um, that said, you know, I think cap and dividend or tax and dividend systems are pretty effective in terms of uh, dealing with some of the equity impacts of pricing emissions. Um, you know, I think Canada's had a pretty good experience with it. Obviously, the U.S. has a harder time with uh, those sort of systems historically and getting them through our politics, um, but. You know, I, I think if, if you're going to go the, the sort of carbon pricing or carbon cap route, uh, the, the tying it into a dividend is definitely my favorite approach.
3: Yeah, I would just go a little bit stronger than Zeke and say the answer is no, we're <laughs> never going to have a global emissions cap <laughs> system. Uh, that, that's just not a realistic goal to have a, uh, you know, any kind of, it, it almost, Max of world governments to say we're going to control how much emissions happens over the whole world. And that's just not a realistic uh, target. What we're going to have is, you know, is regional agreements like we see in Europe, national agreements, systems that are in place in a variety of places, uh, and different countries and different situations approaching the problem in different ways. And that's fine as long as we are all heading in the same direction. It doesn't have to be one single answer to how you approach climate mitigation. We just need to find different paths that work for the different countries and different situations.
2: Uh, We had another question from Dominique who asked, what is the current probability field around acceleration of global warming due to feedbacks? Uh, Examples being less absorption from oceans, uh, the effect of light reflection from surfaces, reduced biological carbon removal?
0: So that's a good question. Uh, our climate models already include a lot of these feedbacks. And so our future uh, warming scenarios also include a lot of feedbacks around changing albedo, some carbon cycle feedbacks, other things like that. Um, there is an expectation in most climate models that there will be some near term acceleration of warming. Um, A lot of that is due less to an acceleration of feedbacks per se than it is to a accelerated decline in aerosol emissions, um, particularly sulfur dioxide, uh, which is a strong cooling effect on the planet by scattering incoming solar radiation and uh, creating more low-lying clouds that are also quite reflective. Um, So there certainly is a concern, and and James Hansen, among others, has brought this up in, in recent months around accelerated warming over the next decade or two due to uh, aerosol declines. Um, I don't think there's. I mean, I, I'm actually not sure if outside of that there'd be an expectation of acceleration simply due to changing natures of feedbacks. Um, you might have a better sense than I do, Robert.
3: Yeah, I mean, my, you know, the 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 feedback issues and how much there's going to be continuation of feedbacks, amplification. The you know, for example, the meltback in the Arctic leading to more. Uh, warming in the Arctic as it exposes ocean surface and, you know, feeding more acceleration. So there are, there are places where you can get amplification in which we have already seen amplification. Uh, and the models try to address that. Uh, not all of them agree on the rates of these feedbacks. Uh, so, you know, for example, at some point you start having, you know, changes in ecosystem types as forests could change into savannas or other things, uh, but we and they don't necessarily agree on what thresholds those will happen. So there are opportunities for things that are go a little bit faster or a little bit slower than we're expecting. Uh, but I don't think there's a lot of. I, I think the models that we use right now we sort of give the central estimate. That's probably about where we're going, but if it's a little bit faster or a little bit slower, we also have you know, models that suggest it could well be. Uh, and we have to be prepared for that possibility as we uh, you know plan for our mitigation and adaptation strategies going forward.
0: Yeah, if I can add, the, the biggest feedback in the climate system is the water vapor feedback. Uh, and that one is, to our knowledge, largely linear uh, as a function of temperature. Um, and even something like sea ice, you know, isn't necessarily going to accelerate as a feedback, right? Because at some point you lose all the summer sea ice and then you essentially have diminishing returns to sea ice loss because it gets harder and harder to lose winter or sort of the closer you get to winter, the harder it is to lose that sea ice um, because it's still cold in the winter um, versus, you know, the, the early loss um, toward getting to a, a zero summer sea ice might be faster. So it's it's not always clear or intuitive the the rate at which these feedbacks will change as the world warms
3: yeah a lot of the changes do have an end point you know as you suggest you lose this you lose the summer sea ice there's no more summer sea ice to lose uh you know you change various ecosystems you know, you've made the change so you can have you might have a fast transition and then you know some stasis and a lot of these things are more regional than they are global they're more you know affecting the local environment
2: Okay, um, several people asked about methane, the second most abundant greenhouse gas after carbon dioxide, including Joe, who asked how much effect is methane release likely to have on temperatures in the next 30 plus years at the current rate of permafrost melt, as well as from manmade costs. Um, We were also asked how big is the methane leakage problem of the natural gas system and will it be solved.
0: Sure. So methane is the second most important greenhouse gas after CO2. Um, it's responsible for around 28% of, of historical warming if, if you look at it as a portion of all positive forcing. So all, all the things that contribute to warming. Um, you know, it by itself it would be more than that, but you know, there's also cooling things like aerosols that mask some of the warming. Um, So, you know, it it certainly is quite important. It's also a very different gas than CO2. uh, And those differences are important to recognize. Um, So CO2, once it gets into the atmosphere, is very stable. Uh, It can only be removed if it gets absorbed by the land, uh, the biosphere essentially, or the oceans. Um, And what that means is that carbon dioxide tends to accumulate in the atmosphere. So you have more and more in the atmosphere over time, even if emissions are not increasing. and that makes it a really tough problem to deal with in, in some ways. Um, methane is different in that it's very short lived in the atmosphere, uh, and it gets broken down in the atmosphere through chemical reactions uh, with uh, hydroxyl radicals, uh, or OH. Uh, and so, if you put methane emissions in the atmosphere, um, most of them will be gone after about twelve years or so, um, due to you know uh, oxidizing, breaking the molecule, breaking down. And so, over the course of about a decade or two, the amount of methane in the atmosphere is uh, doesn't accumulate per se. It's it's a function of the rate of emissions. So if you keep methane emissions flat, you'll keep atmospheric concentrations flat over the longer run. And that's not the case with CO2. Um, and the reason this is important to emphasize is that you know, if you reduce methane emissions, you reduce the amount of, of the concentration in the atmosphere relatively quickly. Uh, if you reduce CO2 emissions, you just stop the amount in the atmosphere from increasing, at least until you get CO2 emissions very, very far down uh and so you know methane can make a big quick impact on the climate you can have some very you know meaningful near-term cooling if you reduce methane emissions Um, but at the same time if if you prioritize methane to the exclusion of co2 you're going to be stuck with a a longer term problem that's much harder to solve whereas you know we could cut methane emissions today we cut them in 10 years it's going to have a similar effect on the climate at the end of the century. If we wait 10 years to cut CO2, it will be a lot more that accumulates in the atmosphere in the near term. Uh, as far as permafrost goes, you know, our current best estimate is that the contributions so far are relatively minor. You know, you're talking maybe a, a percent or two of global current global emissions equivalent. Uh, and that's mostly in the form of CO2. Um, though methane, you know, is, is certainly part of it. Um, and then the question of oil and gas leaks uh, or i should say for, for permafrost of course as the world warms we expect that to accelerate um and you know if we can limit warming to meet paris agreement goals well below 2c we're not worrying too much about long-term permafrost loss but if we get up to like 3c or, or certainly 4c then we start getting very large losses particularly after you know 2200 2300 um, but even this century too um and then in terms of leakage you know it, obviously methane is a, a big Problem uh, in terms of leakage from uh, oil and natural gas systems and coal production for that matter. Coal mines are actually quite leaky of methane. Um, we've had a bit of a reassessment over the last decade in the US. Uh, you know, it turns out that official methane inventories by folks like the EPA are probably too low. Uh, and actual leakage rates are probably somewhere a little above 2% um, versus the, the official inventory value of 1.5% uh, of the methane we produce is leaked. And we can do a lot better than that. Um, you know, there's no reason why that can't be below one percent ultimately. Um, and so, there's a lot of work being done by companies around better detection systems, like drones with infrared cameras to detect methane leaks. Um, all kinds of interesting technologies being brought to bear um, to both identify uh, and then remediate leaks of, of methane from these systems.
3: Uh, yeah. So I would, you know, I would just going back to what Zeke said uh, with respect to the permafrost. Right now, we're not very worried. We know there's a lot of methane in the permafrost, but as far as we can tell, based on ground surveys and satellite data, the amount of methane coming from the permafrost right now is still much, much lower than what's coming from other forms of human activity. And as long as that remains the case, we're not expecting a large feedback from the permafrost melting on our methane system. Uh, We still have to pay attention to it because. As you know the question alludes to, there's a lot of methane in the permafrost. Uh, so it's a concern and something that people look at very closely. But we are generally thinking it's not going to be a huge impact in the near term. Uh, and this, if we can keep global warming down to a manageable threshold, it probably won't be something we can avoid as a serious problem. And, and like Zeke says, we need to reduce methane leakage. We need to regulate the you know rather use the methane we have. You know something, uh, Zeke may know a number better than I do. I believe it's something like a third of all methane that comes into the, that's emitted the atmosphere is coming from uh, methane leaks. Uh, but we, you know, so we can do a lot better to control the leaks, Lighter, tighter pipelines, getting wellhead monitoring, remote sensing will be a big big use in the future. So there's a lot that can be done to make the methane control better.
2: All right, Uh, our last couple of questions are um, touching on um, some human behavior kind of bringing it back closer to home for folks. Um, Obviously, in addition to reducing emissions, reducing our reliance on fossil fuels is key. Uh, We have a question asking about will industrialized nations manage to not only use power more efficiently, but also use less of it via you know small behavior changes taking fewer airline flights living in smaller spaces um, work continuing to work from home not commuting things like that
0: so certainly being more efficient about how we use energy is important uh, and can be a very low cost way to reduce our emissions Um, in practice it's often challenging to Get adoption of behavior change programs at scale. You know, many people have tried in the past, and many people have failed in the past uh, at doing that. Um, I think what we underappreciate in many ways is sort of the virtuous cycle between technological development and behavioral change. You know, it's a lot easier to switch away from eating hamburgers, for example, if I can make an impossible burger that tastes just as good that doesn't have anywhere near the climate impacts. Right? It's a lot easier to change my behavior to driving an EV instead of a a gasoline vehicle or a petrol vehicle, uh, if an EV costs the same amount as a petrol vehicle, uh, or if it saves money for that matter over its lifetime. right? And so if we make clean energy technology and and low energy use technology for that matter cheap enough, then it becomes a lot easier to nudge people over to adopting it. Uh, LED uh, lights are, are another great example um they of a technology that sort of got cheap enough that it's now sort of the default and, and ubiquitous everywhere um and you know there was some behavioral nudges to get people to switch away from incandescent bulbs and you know people still have some attachment to that So I feel like that is finally starting to die out a little bit uh, in the culture wars um but yeah I mean I, I certainly don't think efficiency is going to solve the problem by itself and I think it, it certainly gets overplayed at times in terms of its potential but but it certainly is a one of the the many sort of pieces of the puzzle that we need to put together to, to mitigate climate change.
3: Um, you- yeah. oh, go ahead? I, I would, uh, yeah, I, I would uh, frame the issue a little bit differently uh, because I think we tend to, uh, the, the, the asking how we're going to address climate change, there often is a little too much emphasis on personal action versus system change. And the question seems to be speaking in terms of personal action, reducing your personal uh, footprint and your power usage. Uh, But if you think about it a little bit differently, most of the emissions that the individual has are from their power, their heat, and the transportation of their vehicle. Now, there are other factors, But all three of those are things that can be heavily influenced by the system as a whole. Your electricity grid can be reduced to zero and you don't have to be involved in that. You could have solar panels on your house or something like that and that'd be helpful. But there are already nations that have near zero uh, carbon emission electrical grids. Uh, Secondly, your home heating. If you have electric heating hooked up to a low emission electric grid, you've reduced almost all of the carbon emissions there. And again, that's something that really happens at the system level. Uh, You're not going to have a lot of control over your electric grid. You may or may have some control about what type of heating you have in your house, Uh, a heat pump versus a gas boiler. If you're renting, you probably have no control over that. But we need to incentivize those transitions at a system level. And again, with cars, you know, you got to talk about EVs and these sort of infrastructure changes, you know, changing the framework of what we're selling and buying at a very much at a system level. So while I would agree with Zeke that efficiency has a role to play and it will, you know, and especially more efficient technology when it can be brought to bear. Larger piece of the what needs to happen is really at the large scale, at the policy scale, with governments and corporations uh, moving in direction of low-carbon energy. And it's much less to do with whether an individual is, you know, what food they're eating or what you know clothes they're buying, or these individual choices, which have some importance and will become more important as we cut emissions. But that's a long-term transition. Whereas the things we need to focus on right now are sort of the system level changes, in in my opinion, anyway.
2: Finally, we have one from uh, Candace who points to the impact of climate change on urban planning and development. She uh, says in California, for example, wildfires and sea level rise seem to be reducing a number of places that can be safe to live while at the same time there's pressure to build more housing, how can we effectively integrate realistic climate projections with city infrastructure needs?
0: So I think in many ways, cities are more resilient to climate change than you know, more dispersed uh, places that people can live. Um, certainly in the West, we see the biggest impacts of wildfire on homes in the wildland urban interface, so the areas that are sort of abutting against natural areas. Um, And, you know, I think we we under recognize to an extent, the extent to which housing policy is climate policy, you know, people who live in dense urban areas are usually responsible for half or less of the per capita household emissions um, and transport emissions for that matter, uh, at least if you exclude aviation, uh, than people who live in uh, suburban areas or exurban areas. Uh, and so by, you know, providing more dense urban housing, um, we can help reduce emissions and also reduce stress on surrounding ecosystems and reduce the risk of wildfires. You know, that said, there still are a lot of climate impacts outside of wildfires that have big impacts on cities. You know, sea level rise is certainly a big one. Um, extreme heat events are others. Uh, and there are, you know, urban heat islands that can exacerbate the effect of extreme heat events. Um, so it's important for cities to, you know, be proactive in adaptation planning things like the construction of seawalls for example to you know reduce coastal flooding and coastal erosion um, the creation of co- municipal cooling centers uh, in order to provide a place for folks to go if they might not have access to air conditioning during extreme heat events um, and there's an interesting as an aside there's an interesting dynamic where the uh, largest increase in heat deaths associated with extreme heat events isn't in cities that are already very hot like phoenix arizona It is in places like, say, Seattle, um, where people just aren't used to that level of heat and don't have air conditioning or other, you know, technologies that let them adapt to it. And so making those more readily accessible to people uh, is quite important. Um, And so I think you know we we can. We we certainly shouldn't let climate change, you know, stop us from building more housing, and particularly in in dense urban areas. but you know we certainly should keep it in mind, particularly for you know more suburban or exurban developments uh, around its its impacts, both in terms of the vulnerability but also in terms of the emission impacts of you know building houses and in, in those sort of areas.
3: You know, I, I would mention that there's also a I move I need. Uh, which has been developing, the scientific community has been working to address, which is to provide localized information about what's going to happen in the climate change. Uh, Some of this is relatively easy to give some feedback on, sea level rise, for example, uh, at least as a near-term issue, you can sea level advice is not hard. Uh, Temperature modeling for at the city level is a little bit trickier Uh, Because of urban heat island effects, you know, the the urban landscape can be quite heterogeneous, uh, with, you know, some places have trees, some don't, you know, asphalt and all these things. But we do need to provide information that the city planners need to figure out, okay, what's going to change? How do we need to address it? Uh, For example, do we need to be better prepared for heavier rainstorms? And, you know, what does the flooding potential look like in the future? Uh, you have places like Houston, which over the last decade has seen three, what were called 500-year storms. Well, those probably weren't really 500-year storms anymore. Uh, you, know, you probably need to be re- evaluating what is the realistic risk in various situations. And climate models and climate science can inform that, and I think we are moving in a direction to provide localized information to city planners and engineers uh, that will be better able to address that question, though it's still a challenging issue to move from studies at sort of the global level to studies at the neighborhood level where it might be most useful. Uh, but yeah, the, there's a lot that needs to be done to uh, prepare for changes. And there's a lot that needs to be done to stop, you know, to reduce how much changes are coming. Uh, so it's a challenging problem, and there's a lot of work yet left to do.
2: In closing, I just want to share a thought from uh, Michael, who wrote to us Can we hope to all come together in order to take all the actions needed to reverse carbon emissions and change our lifestyles accordingly if we stay in the same consciousness within which we have created this problem? He said, Albert Einstein famously wrote, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Maybe you both uh, could could end with a closing thought on that. On that.
3: Yeah, uh, I
2: mean,
3: you know, Einstein is obviously uh, right. You know, we need to have, we need to bring different solutions to bear. It needs to be working towards, you know, a green economy, working towards sustainability. Uh, and, you know, I suspect we will have much of the infrastructure we have now, but we'll do things a bit differently. We'll have more efficient uh, cars, more efficient heating, better ways to distribute and manage power, and that this will allow us to get away from the destructive uh, carbon burning attitudes we've had for most of our development.
0: Yeah, and to add to that, you know, we're we're going to have tons of debates going forward about exactly what specific solutions different groups like, and and what should be funded and that sort of stuff. But at the core, you know, we know how to solve climate change. We stop burning fossil fuels and use clean energy alternatives instead for the things we use fossil fuels for today. Um, that solves the problem. And so, you know, the faster we can move toward that. Uh, and not sort of get too caught up in the debate about what is the perfect solution that you know one group prefers or another group prefers, I think the faster we can solve the problem.
2: Thank you for joining us today. We'd like to remind everyone that Berkeley Earth is an independent non-governmental source of vital climate change data. We hope you'll donate today to support our research. For air pollution data and climate change information, visit BerkeleyEarth.org.
1: You can help support Berkeley Earth's independent climate science. Visit donate.berkeleyearth.org to make your tax-deductible donation today. Thank you for listening and for supporting Berkeley Earth.